there is some nomenclature confusion. When you talk to someone that works within the packaging realm, at a supplier at least, you'll hear the term stopper. And what stopper to all of us refers to is the stopper that would go this on top of a vial. So it would be part of ultimately a vial system, right? You would have a glass vial with a elastomeric stopper and an aluminum seal or flip off that would go on top to seal that together. So that is what we typically call a stopper. Now, where I think a lot of the confusion comes into play is with the people using the term stopper or stopper plunger when they're speaking specifically about what we would call a plunger or what's also termed a piston for a syringe system. And there's a lot of history where people in the industry in general, in the pharmaceutical industry, have just called it a stopper or a plunger stopper. We normally refer to that, that little elastomeric component that gets pressed to push the, the medicine out as a, a plunger, or you'll see it, especially in ISO, it might be referred to more so as a piston. Of course, there are other types of elastomeric components too. For instance, you could find a rubber liner as part of a line seal. And that would be, for instance, the end of a cartridge. So, you know, my only point being there are different types of rubber components also. And even within certainly the stopper realm, right, you could have a serum stopper, which would be intended for liquid medicine or a lyophilization stopper. Right, which would be used as part of the lyophilization process that a drug would go through. Hello, Combi Nation. My name is Subi Sadeh. I've spent over a decade in medical device, pharma, and combination product development. Our industry feels complicated sometimes. Drugs, devices, clinical trials, submissions, sterilization, validation, design control, risk management, market access, reimbursement. The list goes on. My goal is mastery. So this podcast is to ask questions I have to people who may have the answers. Each week on the Combinate podcast, I talk to someone about their area to further understand and simplify. Whether you're a pharma person trying to understand the next wave of products, or a device person trying to navigate a pharma system you're unfamiliar with, or a newbie in both areas, I invite you to listen. And together, we can simplify by combinating. So you, you just mentioned machinability and, and machining. So in, in, in my experience, machining is when you're cutting something effectively, right? CNC machining from a hardware point of view. When, because machinability is something that's talked about quite often, but it, it seems like it's an all-encompassing term. What, is it, what does it mean practically? Well, in re relationship to the components, it's the ability for them to go through the, the fill finish equipment effectively. So from the stopper bowl to down through the line, and then certainly getting inserted, whether it be 
the top of a vial or getting placed into a syringe barrel. And so it's it's more of a manufacturability or yes. or, or not manufacturing because manufacturability is still on the component assemblability. It's part of that that process, right? It would be anything that could interfere with that process going smoothly at the pharma company or the CMO that's using the component. Let's move to the different types of estimeric components, or I should say the different variations. Coated, uncoated, laminated, am I missing any? No, I mean, I think those are the, the, the biggest the categories. alternatives. There's different types of coatings for sure, mm-hmm. and different types of laminations. And certainly there are versions that are not coated at all, and those though in the end would have to have at least a silicone oil applied to them so that they could be, as we talked earlier, machined down through the equipment. Maybe start with, with uncoated. It, it means that there's n- no additional coating applied to the stopper. So it's just a, it's, it's a rubber elastomeric component, no additional secondary steps. That's correct. And, and that means all uncoated are not ready to use. Well, you could get uncoated in a ready to sterilize or a ready to use version. In both of those cases, part of that processing would need to include a rinse or wash in, in a silicone oil emulsion, right? So that would then give the elastomer the lubricity that's needed so that it can run in the equipment. So you could take a, what we would call unprocessed, non-coated bulk component. You could put it through a ready-to-sterilize wash process. And as part of that ready-to-sterilize wash process, it would go through a rinse with a silicone oil emulsion that then would go either to the pharmaceutical company's sterilization process or can then go into the component supplier's sterilization process and become then a ready-to-use product for use. And and typically, can you buy at each level? Like you can, you can buy it without any processing. You can buy it with just the washing and you can buy it with it being sterilized as well. Typically. Yes. The same, the same component. Yes. And then coating. The coatings, again, there's various types of coatings. Sorry, Um, you, you had, you had mentioned the ready to sterilize washing process and silicone oil. Is that not coating? Well, right. This is this is where when you talk about it's it ends up being a silicone oil coating that's on the stopper for lubricity, but it's added in the wash process, so it's not purchased per se as a coated component. Mm. When we speak of coatings, it's something that would be applied in a in a process other than that silicone emulsion wash process because that's really the tradition if you go back years ago 
that's how it was done, right? The silicone oil was added in some way as a post-process. If you go way, way back, right, it was actually the silicone oil could have been added without using the wash, the pharmaceutical wash process. Yeah. Now, the issue there is that you certainly didn't get a uniform distribution of the silicone oil like you do now with adding it as a part of the pharmaceutical wash process. What's the big issue with silicone oil? Well, first of all, silicone oil is a, a positive in the sense of it's been used for a lot of years and it's very common and it adds bricity uh, to the surface of the elastomer. The negatives associated with it can be the one is lack of control in certain processes. Two would be the potential to, for it to become particulate in the drug product. And this is certainly a, a very much a sensitive issue, especially in the cases of, in the case of ophthalmic drug delivery. Mm. Right? You want to avoid having silicone oil injected into the eye. There can also be certain drugs that are just sensitive to certain silicone oil, certain biologics. Again, it's not a huge number, but there are some that are sensitive. And so you can have a, an incompatibility. So those are sort of the most common negatives associated with silicone oil. I've seen it in the, we'll say, non pharma space where there's concerned around migration. Is that not a, a concern? Is it more contained in? No, no. I mean, you're, you're right. Silicone oil. I mean, one of the big challenges with silicone oil is it gets anywhere. Yeah. Right. So it gets everywhere. So migration is an issue. If we go back to lyophilization for a moment, if there's too much silicone oil on the stopper, you can get it migrates into the vial and you can get what's called hazing upon reconstitution. So when you reconstitute the drug, now it's not clear, but it's cloudy and that's due to the silicone oil. Interesting. Okay. And then, and then the, the different coatings. So, so when, 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 when a plunger is coated, that, that means it's coated with something other than silicone oil. Well, yes, typically, but there's some exception to that too. So sure. let me explain that a, a little bit. What I would say is when we, we talk about coatings in general, it would be any kind of additional coating process other than the silicone oil wash that were, that would be the traditional. So for instance, there are some suppliers that can have a silicone that's applied, but it's polymerized onto the surface of the rubber through a post treatment, right? So this is after, after the components have been molded, for instance, they go through a spray process. This silicone then goes through some other treatments and it is attached to the surface of the rubber. So it has much lower tendency to come off into the drug solution. 
what is what is the what what is the polymerization process look like? Is it a, a baking process or how do you it, how do you make it more it, integrated? It be, yeah, it can be um there's a couple different things involved. One can be UV curing, microwaves can be involved. There's there's different types and ways of of doing this. You also have totally different coatings that are not mostly silicone based. And again, those can be, and typically they're either sprayed on or tumbled. And again, they would go through some kind of a curing process to remain on the surface of the, the stuff. Are there a list of main coatings that are widely used? There really isn't a list per se. Each elastomer supplier has their own unique options, I would say. And so you really would need to, to speak to each one to get into the details of that. And then lamination. Lamination, right. Lamination is where the... Typically, what gets laminated is a fluoroelastomer film gets laminated onto the surface of the rubber component, and that's using heat and pressure. And there's typically, again, some kind of a treatment on that film lam laminate that allows it to attach to the surface of the rubber. And, and so what, what does that look like? So the, 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 let's maybe switch into the manufacturing to help get an understanding. So maybe we'll start at the basics and end with laminated because it sounds like laminated, but goes uncoated and then it goes coating, which is an additional process and then laminated. It's, it, it sounds like adds an additional component yeah. that, that was okay. So, so maybe let's start with, are all stoppers molded? All stoppers are molded in, in some way, right? And the most common way of molding rubber is what's called compression mold. Um, and that's different from also, injection molding? There's injection molding. There's combinations of the two. So there's all different techniques, but certainly one of the most common is compression mold. What is the, how does it differ from injection molding? Is there not a sure. melt? Com compression molding is where there's a sheet of rubber that's mixed, right? You have, let's start sort of maybe back with the raw materials. Yeah, good. And you typically in a, in a rubber elastomeric formulation, you'll have anywhere from six or seven to maybe 12 different raw ingredients. Okay, so... One of the issues that I think we need to clear is that it's not just one thing, right? So people a lot of times hear, well, this is a bromobutyl stopper. It's not just bromobutyl. There are probably at least a half dozen other ingredients that are involved because you're actually taking that polymer and cross-linking it to give it ultimately the type of physicality and chemical properties that you need. So there are other ingredients added to that polymer and they go th through a, a mixing process and then typically a calendaring 
or an extrusion process. And from that, then the rubber goes into the molding process. And so, so you're saying that the where for injection molding, let's say it's pellets or resin for, for the compression molding, it's coming in as a sheet. Coming in as a, as a sheet. And also, I mean, for injection molding, again, you're thinking of when you talk about pellets or resin, you're thinking of plastics. Right. There's, it's going to be different with elastomers, rubber. And that's what we're speaking to now because it most typically, even in injection molding, it will come in maybe in an extrusion form or extruded form into the injection mold. So, and where things are actually very different versus plastics is that typically when you injection mold a plastic, you bring the material in hot and it cools when it's in the tool right. to get to shape. Well, if you think about the elastomers, you're doing actually something just the opposite, right? It's coming in and it's, it's got to be a certain temperature to flow a bit, but it actually undergoes its curing at higher temperatures in the mold, in the tool. Okay, so it's almost the opposite to a certain extent of what you would be doing with a plastic resin. Uh, you mentioned, you mentioned, sorry, just going back to the, the, the raw material section, you mentioned calendaring or extrusion. I know what extrusion is, but what is calendaring? Calendaring is, again, after the rubber has been mixed, it's basically making a big, big sheet of, of rubber that can be, that can be used. So at, at a th certain thickness and that, ki that kind of thing. So that's calendaring is versus extrusion is usually a uh, maybe a smaller width in a extruded tube it can be different shapes when it's extruded when something it's calendars it's typically calendared into a sheet and that's the sheet right that sheet would be weighed and cut and then that is a certain weight is then applied to that compression mold and a compression mold is very much like a waffle maker. Basically, you're putting the batter in the middle and then the compression mold you know, comes down and the heat and pressure is applied to cure the rubber. And so I think that's something that's very unique about the rubber elastomers, right, is they're undergoing in all these cases, whether it's injection molding or compression molding, they're undergoing actual chemical reactions. Mm. So... This is why there's complexity to them, especially when it comes to things like extractables, right? It's not just, I put these 10 ingredients in and I get 10 ingredients out. You're actually going through chemical reactions that form new chemicals or breakdown products of what was originally placed in, into the formulation. I'm just trying to imagine because because I, I haven't seen compression molding. So where where for injection molding, the tool closes, the plastic is injected in, the 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 parts come out, and then it happens again. There's a there's an insertion of the sheet that happens right. before it you would, close. It would, be more, it would be horizontal. Horizontal okay. molding. It's typically horizontal. I'm not going to say always, but typically yeah. horizontal, and the sheet would be placed on the bottom. 
and tools would come together. Now, when that comes out, it's actually still on a sheet. So then that needs to be taken to a trim press, what's called a trim press, and the components are individually trimmed out. And of course, that's another major difference between injection molding and compression molding. Injection molding, once they're molded, they come out typically as that final unit. So it doesn't need to go through a secondary trimming process. Yeah, I, I was going to ask, well, is there a runner that sticks on? And so it sounds like it comes out as a whole sheet. And you said each component is individually trimmed out. Is that like, that's correct. Is it physically cut or it's pressure or how do it? It's, it's physically, you go to a trim press and it's placed in the trim, what's called a trim die. Oh, and okay. it comes down and it would. So let's say there's tip, there's 50 pieces on a sheet. That trim die would be able to do those 50 pieces at one time. At once. Okay. But so they're basically die cut. Yes. Okay. And then, and then, so now, now you have your components, let's say what happens next in terms of manufacturing, let's maybe go into the, 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 you said you called it pharmaceutical wash. Right. Now, typically any component is going to go through a basic wash process using a canister washer or some other technique to just get off any excess that may be there. However, what is actually used for a ready-to-sterilize process or the ready-to-use process is that those components will then, from that process, go into a pharmaceutical washer, which would be the same kind of washer that would be used by any pharmaceutical company when, when they were doing their own components. And so that's when it would go through that process and there be detergent, if that's been defined, that would be added and silicone oil at the end of that process, if that was so defined in that, that process. And it, there are specifications assigned to every wash load. So I think that's another a huge benefit compared to when the industry, the pharmaceutical industry, was actually washing components in their own facilities because they would validate the process, of course, but they did not test every lot typically, where now there are specifications, of course, that each of those wash loads needs to meet. And those are for things like endotoxin, pyrogens, particles levels, siliconization level. So again, there's specs applied to, to all of these things. And so after the wash, then it goes into a secondary coating process, if that's what's specified or it goes into sterilization. No, it would actually go into secondary coating or Floratech, for instance, for a fluoroelastomer film application. I know certainly Floratech's very common, but there are multiple component manufacturers now that are applying films to components. And that would all occur before the pharmaceutical wash process. Oh, so, okay. So if there is a secondary coating, it happens before the wash. That's correct. Okay. Interesting. And then the, then, then sterilization happens. That's correct. Yeah. After the wash. So it goes, 
it goes molding to secondary coating if needed to washing. That's correct. Or you skip the the secondary coating if there is no secondary. Coating. Right. If there isn't one, then you would go right into washing. If there is a secondary coating, then it would go into after that. The films are actually applied, laminations are applied during the molding process. So they are actually part of that molding process. Oh, and so is it a multi-shot type mold or how does it, how does that, that work? It all depends also on the, the component, the supplier. So it's, it's not one standard, standard way of doing it. Is there, is there a more typical way or, or this is so specialized that it's like, it depends on no, the component? It's really, really going to depend on the design of the component. And can you talk about the, the, the ribs? And cause my understanding is that typically only the top is laminated if it is laminated, but not the side and bottom. Is yes, that right? Typically. typically and it's changing talking, maybe, but. Well, if you're talking about a film coated plunger intended for use with a glass barrel. Okay. So we need to make that, we need to clarify that. If that's the case, then right, only the drug contact portion, which is that face of the plunger, is typically covered in film. And the real reason for that is to assure container closure integrity. Typically, right, you, you want to have the rubber. Why rubber's used is because it can flow a little bit, right? And so it's going right. to flow into any little scratches or things of that nature that might be on the inside of that glass barrel. If you have it covered with film, then that can be a definite problem. Not only film, but even other coatings that may be used. So it's just something to be sensitive to in relationship to glass barrels. As, as we move to close, cause I, I know you gotta go. Can you talk about the standards that are used? There's, there's 381 and 382 that are pretty common, but then there's also ISO standards and the USPs sometimes will reference the ISO standards, but not the other way around. So it, it's kind of confusing. Yeah. So where do standards come in? Yeah. So I would say historically, each region had their own standards, right? So you had USP, you had Pharmacopeia of Europe, you had Japanese Pharmacopeia in Asia. But certainly through the years, there have been a drive towards trying to get more harmonized. I do feel that ISO is certainly now being looked at as more of a standard to at least reference from a global perspective. It does not necessarily take away from doing the common pharmacopendial tests that need to be done, though. So, for instance, for elastomeric closures, you have the USP 381. That rewrite, which I think occurred like in 2020, was to break USP 381 down into USP 381 and USP 382. And what that did was to split out the physical chemical tests with the functional tests. Because when you take a more pure scientific 
approach to this, you realize that many of those tests, especially from a functionality and performance standpoint, can't be done on a single component. It's really done on a system. And so I think one of the things they tried to reinforce with the USP 382, and then you also have their associated chapters 1381 and 1382, which gives, I think, a lot more color around the, the testing and, and such. I think what they tried to do was give an approach that would be more specific to the final application of that component that's being used. So how is it being processed, sterilized? What system does it come together with? If it's a plunger, how's that going to work with the glass barrel? If it's a stopper, how's it going to be integrated with the glass bottom? And so that's really what, what those are about. In Europe, there is pharm the Pharmacopoeia of Europe chapter, which is 3.2.9. There's also an ISO chapter, 15378, 2017, that's around primary packaging materials. But I would say, again, that's more general. It's more around GMPs and quality systems. Yeah. And so I think that a lot of times they are working, trying to work towards harmonization. And when they can, they are referencing standards. And I, I do know, I've heard a lot more from an FDA perspective in mentioning ISO standards and sanctioning some of those. So I think that, again, that all needs to be done from a fundamental standpoint, but those are just sort of the beginning. I, I can remember when a few years back, people would think, well, if I did USP 381, I didn't have to do extractables testing, right? And we all know that's not true, right? So we have USP 1663 now, which talks about extractable testing and USP 1664, it talks about leachables testing in, in drug product. So I think certainly that the industry as a whole has progressed to understand that compendial testing is really what you do to sort of get in the game. It doesn't take away from other testing that you may need to, to do. Well, where can people find you, Fran? Well, people can find me absolutely through LinkedIn. Also, I work as a Kymanox executive advisor and can reach me through either avenue. Thanks for coming on again. Take care, Subi.